Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Christmas story in front of us this morning, I'm sure, is familiar to most of us. We have Caesar Augustus issuing his decree, uh, Joseph and Mary going up to Bethlehem. While they are there, it's time for the baby Jesus to be born. After he is born, Mary wraps him in swaddling cloths, laying her firstborn son in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, hearing these words might even sound a little bit sentimental to our ears. Many inviting nativity scenes focus on the details of our text before us this morning. And that influence might even make us picture the scene before us as somewhat romantic even. If you imagine the baby Jesus quietly snuggled in some swaddling cloths, lying on a cushy pile of hay, you might even think, oh, this would make some great pictures for a birth announcement card. You can even see the message that goes along with it. Rejoice with us in the birth of our firstborn son, our little stable-born baby. Now, it is true that Joseph and Mary could rejoice with the birth of their first child, However, we should understand a few things here that we may not see immediately. First, the scene before us is anything but romantic. This was a difficult circumstance for the birth of Jesus to be born in. Difficult for Mary and Joseph. The second thing is understanding the significance of Mary giving birth to her firstborn son. The significant significance reaches far beyond Joseph and Mary starting up their own little family. No, when you search the scriptures, it's amazing to see how often the Lord Jesus is referred to as the firstborn, and not just the firstborn of Mary. Psalm 89, which we sang together, calls him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. Hebrews 1 says God sent his firstborn son into the world. That doesn't mean that Jesus or the God's son had a beginning. He's eternal, but it means he is the heir, heir of God, heir of all things. Colossians 1 calls him the firstborn of all creation. Again, the heir. And Romans 8 calls him the firstborn among many brothers, referring to us, believers. And then there's Revelation 1, that greeting that the Lord Jesus gives to his church, which we heard from also this morning at the start of the service, where Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn, firstborn, firstborn. And that's what we have here in front of us this morning. The birth of the great firstborn son into the world. The fact that Jesus is the firstborn son has great significance for God's plan for the world and also for our salvation. So that brings us to the sermon theme. Jesus Christ, the firstborn son, is born into the world. And we are to do two things. First of all, recognize his person. And second of all, trust in him for salvation. Now, we have four Gospels in the Bible. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one main purpose of each gospel writer is to show us who Jesus is. You see, often the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the same stories. But as they tell those stories, each author includes different details in order to highlight something unique about Jesus Christ. Mark, for example, emphasizes Jesus as the Son of God. That's his theme. John aims to show us that Jesus is fully God, one with the Father. That's one of his themes. Matthew writes to show Jesus as another Moses, the king from David's line, and the true seed of Abraham. And that brings us to the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is similar to Matthew in many ways. However, Luke emphasizes Jesus as the true son of David and heir to David's throne. That's one of Luke's purposes in his gospel. And because our text is from Luke's gospel, we will focus on how this unfolds throughout Luke's gospel for a moment before looking specifically at our text. Now, Luke, of course, wrote two books, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. In some ways, the structure of Luke and Acts matches the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel from the Old Testament. Consider the following. Both 1st Samuel and Luke begin with a story about a man married to a barren woman sacrificing at God's place of worship. In 1 Samuel, Samuel, it's Elkanah, married to Hannah. In Luke, it's Zechariah, married to Elizabeth. Next, by God's power, both barren women conceive a son. And both of their children, Samuel and then John the Baptist, become important messengers in Israel. Next, when you compare Mary's song of praise in Luke 1 you can see that it matches very closely with Hannah's song of praise in 1 Samuel 2. The wording and the themes are the same. Moreover, the crowning of David as king happens right at the transition from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel. Likewise, the crowning of Christ as king happens right at the transition from Luke to Acts with the ascension of Jesus. Now, why would Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, arrange his gospel and the book of Acts like that? It's to show us something important about the Lord Jesus. He's basically telling us the Lord Jesus is another David. Or perhaps it's better to say that Jesus is the David God promised to send to his people. For the Lord often used that language when he predicted the coming of the Christ. He would send David. As only one example of this, listen to what the Lord proclaimed in Ezekiel 34. I will send up over my people one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. By these words, the Lord is not saying 
that he's going to raise the Old Testament King David from the dead and set him back upon the throne. Rather, he was promising that the kingship of the Messiah would match the kingship of David. The Messiah's kingship would match David's kingship by its events, similar events, and by its character. And the Gospel of Luke then shows this to be the case at various points. Earlier, we sang from Psalm 89, a psalm about God's promise to David to place one of his sons on his throne forever. In this psalm, the Lord refers to David as his chosen one. We sang that. The Old Testament uses this language elsewhere to refer to David. But Luke, in his gospel, then uses this same language in relation to Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. But there are some small but important differences. In Matthew and Mark's gospels, the voice of God the Father from the cloud declares, this is my beloved Son. In Luke's gospel, however, the voice from the cloud declares, this is my son, my chosen one. He uses that important title, the chosen one. We see the same thing at the cross of Christ. In Luke 23, the rulers of the people scoff at Jesus, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. You see, all four Gospels describe the mocking of Christ at the cross. Only Luke uses the language of the Chosen One, a title for the great son of David. And by including these details in the way he does, Luke, by the power of the Spirit, is showing us that Jesus is this promised child of David. Jesus is David's royal son. And this is the very same message given in our text from Luke 2. Let's now focus on our text. Luke 2 verse 1 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Augustus issued this registration or census for taxation purposes. And in response to the decree, Joseph, along with Mary, they obediently went up from Galilee to Bethlehem to be registered there. Now, Bethlehem, of course, was where King David himself was born, where he grew up. And Joseph had to go there because he was part of David's family line. That's where the registration records were kept. That's where he had to go for this census. While they were there, Mary gave birth to Jesus. And all these details serve important functions. First of all, Jesus was born in Bethlehem to continue that theme of Jesus' kingship, matching the kingship of David. Just as David was born in Bethlehem, so would his great ancestor, our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a more important reason why Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem as part of this census decreed by Caesar. And this is something one of my seminary professors once pointed out to us 
as a class. When you read the events surrounding Jesus' birth, what do you so often see? You see God directing people and giving them messages through the work of angels. Gabriel announces John's birth to Zechariah in Luke 1. Uh, He does the same to Mary for the birth of Jesus in Luke 1. In Matthew's gospel, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, and and in Matthew's gospel, uh, so he appeared to Joseph in a dream, telling him not to divorce Mary. So there's angels everywhere, right, in the gospel stories surrounding the events of Christ's birth. We might wonder, well, why didn't God do the same with Mary and Joseph to send them to Bethlehem? He could have done that. It probably would have been easier. However, the registration decreed by Caesar Augustus served an important purpose. Joseph was from the line of David, and as such, Joseph was heir to David's throne. By having Mary registered with Joseph at the time of Jesus' birth, what happened? Well, it legally tied Jesus to the royal line of David by descent in law. Jesus was now born to the kingly line of David by the law of the land, the highest law of the land through Caesar. And so he was legal heir to David's throne after Joseph. The census decreed by Caesar Augustus accomplishes this purpose. And so it's wonderful to see God's marvelous providence bringing this about, Augustus being the most powerful man who ever lived to this point in history. He is a servant in the hand of God to make sure that the great king, Jesus, is, uh, becomes legal heir to the throne of David. And to continue on this same theme, the announcement of Jesus' birth is then told to shepherds near Bethlehem. This is the very same region where so long ago David kept watch over his father's sheep. The Lord Jesus, like David, would be the shepherd king who would rule God's people through his humble service. So seeing all of this throughout Luke's gospel as a whole, and seeing the events of our text specifically, what is the message What is the main point? Well, God, by all of these things, is calling each of us to recognize who Jesus is. To see that Jesus Christ is that great son of David. This is the one, this child, born in Bethlehem. This is the one God promised to send over and over again, for so many years. When you read the Old Testament, you can see that so many promises and so many prophecies focused on the coming of this king from David's line. I could mention so many of them. I'll I'll mention a few of them. We could go on and on. There's 2 Samuel 7, where God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A few weeks ago, we heard God's word from Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, the one who would uh, rule and uh, renew creation. 
promise of a king from David's line. There's God's word in Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. While I could mention many more, I'll mention that well-known text. It's the last one from Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom he will rule. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, with all the details in our text and in Luke's gospel, God is creating a spotlight on the Lord Jesus. He's emphasizing in no uncertain, time, uh, uncertain terms, the promised king has now come. Don't miss him. See him, recognize him. Don't expect someone else after him. All of my promises are fulfilled in this one child. All of salvation is found in him and in him alone. You need no one else. You should expect no one else. This is it. Recognize him. Focus on him. Believe in him. That brings us to our second point. So verses 6 and 7 describe the birth of the baby King Jesus. It says, while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, this must have been incredibly stressful, a stressful circumstances in which to uh, deliver a baby. Uh, one of my children was nearly born in the van on the way to the hospital. That was bad enough. Well, this is at a completely different level. Here they are in somewhat of a stable area. Mary's giving birth there. Mary and Joseph, far from home, far away from family. Here they are in tiny Bethlehem, can't even find proper lodging in the local inn, which itself was surely no luxury suite. And then at one point, Mary looks at Joseph and says, well, ready or not, this baby's coming. And I can't even imagine what Joseph must have been thinking. So retreating to some kind of stable area for animals, far from any doctor or midwife, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. You know, when the angel Gabriel announced the coming birth of Christ, about nine months previous to this, Mary probably never, in her wildest imagination, uh, thought that something like this would happen when the child was born. After all, listen to the promise she received from God through Gabriel. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There's certainly no mention of a long trek towards Bethlehem in that promise, much less giving birth in a stable area. 
In fact, this proclamation from Gabriel doesn't mention any sort of suffering at all. Looking at the bare promise of God, it sounds like nothing but glory and good times are coming. And to be sure, this glorious promise would be fulfilled. But that glorious promise would only be fulfilled through the path of suffering. That's how it was for Mary and Joseph. They experienced that here, right at the beginning of his birth. And you know what? It's often that way for us, too. We also of God's precious promises in Jesus Christ. At times we might really wonder to ourselves, here are God's promises on the one hand, and yet look how much I am suffering on the other hand. Doesn't seem to add up, doesn't seem to match or make much sense. If God's great promises are true for me, why do I suffer like this? We must remember God's promises do not save us from suffering in this life. Instead, God often fulfills His promises to us through the path of suffering. Glory will come. The beautiful end of God's promises and fulfillment of them will come. But we need to persevere in faith to see it. And that was true for Mary and Joseph as well. The reality is the chaotic events surrounding Jesus' birth actually show God being true to his word. Although God never mentioned any of this to Mary through Gabriel, this is something God had already told Eve thousands of years earlier. God told the woman in Genesis 3, after, after the fall into sin, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Part of the curse upon creation. And Mary, giving birth to her firstborn, away from all physical comforts, laying her firstborn in a manger, it's part of that curse that came upon creation. They're feeling it at this moment giving birth to Jesus in pain and adversity. The good news, however, is that the baby she gave birth to is the very one who came to undo that curse. God proclaimed to the serpent after the fall into sin, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this child of Mary, the firstborn, Our Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate offspring of the woman. He was born to save us from Satan. And he would deliver the crushing blow to Satan's head, the one who worked to bring the curse down upon us in the beginning. And this too matches with what the Old Testament predicted about the promised king from David's line. God's promise to crush the head of the serpent and his offspring would be fulfilled in David's royal son. Take Psalm 2, for example, a psalm about God's anointed king, the coming Messiah. 
The Lord promises, you shall break the nations with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like potter's vessel. Psalm 110 is the same. So this king came to undo the curse, to destroy Satan's work. However, the pathway to that victory for the Messiah would likewise, like it was for Joseph and Mary, would be the pathway of suffering. As I said earlier, God's glorious promise would be fulfilled, but through that path of suffering. In this too, the Holy Spirit shows how Christ's kingship matches the kingship of David. Or how did it go for David? God promised the throne to David and anointed him as king over Israel. It all began in Bethlehem, came to fulfillment in Jerusalem. But what happened in between? Well, David suffered greatly as he waited for God's timing to take the throne. He was chased by Saul in the wilderness. His enemies tried to put him to death. He never had a home with a bed to rest his head at night. It was the same for our Lord Jesus. It started here in Bethlehem with his birth. Came to a fulfillment in Jerusalem. In between, he walked the path of suffering without any place to rest his head, patiently waiting for God to give him the throne. It all came to a fulfillment in Jerusalem at the end of Christ's ministry. But the difference between David and Jesus was what happened when they entered Jerusalem. See, David captured Jerusalem and subsequently reigned there as king on earth. But what happened to the Lord Jesus? Well, at the end of his ministry, the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. And they welcomed him as king. He came into the city amid shouts of joy. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were probably expecting another enthronement in Jerusalem, like what happened to David so many years ago. But the suffering was not yet over for Jesus Christ. In fact, it would only increase greatly. Less than a week later, Jesus was crucified on the cross. He hung there in agony under the wrath of God for our sins. It seemed like a defeat, but the reality was the opposite. Jesus could only gain the throne by humbly obeying God all the way to the cross. The way to the crown for Christ was the way of the cross. He had to give his life as a ransom, taking God's wrath upon himself for our sakes, to free us from eternal death, to transfer us into his eternal kingdom. And by going to the cross and dying in our place, Christ Jesus gained an even greater throne and a much greater kingship than David. And by this victory in the cross, the royal son of David crushed the head of our great enemy, the devil. And in all these things, God is showing us the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. 
The person who defeats the devil for us. The person who overcomes the curse of death for us. The person who gives us eternal life. It's none other than this one who was born in Bethlehem. He came, yes, born as a king. He came to suffer and die in our place, and so gain an eternal kingdom. And if you believe in him, believe in him, beloved, you are transferred into that eternal kingdom, and your sins are forgiven. You see, all of God's promises of salvation are fulfilled in this baby, Jesus Christ. He's the firstborn of Mary, the offspring of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. He's the firstborn of David, born into this world to gain the throne of David. He's the firstborn from the dead, the one whose resurrection ensures our resurrection. He's the firstborn of God, heir of the world. God the Father has given the world to his Son. He will claim it at his second coming. He is your King. He's your Savior. You have eternal life in him. Amen.